Hello, and welcome to Hoops Hour, presented by Hoops Hour. This is episode 5. It is a new year, 2024. Uh, Sorry it's been a bit. I'm not going to waste too much time uh, explaining basically that I've just been uh, kind of lazy. (laughs) Um, And also working on diversifying where the content can be when the content comes, but I probably should have just started with getting the content back out. Um, either way, we're here now, episode five. Got a fucking doozy for you. I don't know if I should have sworn within the first like minute. I don't know if that affects anything. I don't know. I'm getting two in my head again. I'm rusty. I'm rusty. What can you say? Um, I got a long episode uh, uh, for y'all this time, uh, I think. I don't know how long it's going to be. <laughs> I just know that my notes are long as shit, so uh, I'm not really going to waste any time and uh, kind of just get into it. Also, I don't really have like much to say outside of uh, basketball. Um, my trip was nice. I got to go back to New York and see friends. I, uh, I went and saw an NBA game for the first time, which was really cool. New Year's Eve in D.C., uh, Wizards hosting the Hawks. It was, uh, it was a really fun time. Capital One Arena is awesome. Uh, the Chinatown downtown DC section is awesome. Kyle Kuzma put up like 38 shots though. He took 27 threes. Sorry, I think he put up 34 shots and took 27 threes or something like that. I don't remember what it was. Um, but Kyle Kuzma was like, I don't know. I kept joking for like weeks before that, oh, he's going to have like a, He's going to have a 40 ball, like I'm calling it, you know, he's, he's going to have a 40 ball for, for New Year's Eve. Um, and it really felt like he heard me and was just trying to will it into existence because the dude put up literally like 35 shots, uh, like 17, 20, 25 of them were like three pointers. It was, I don't know who the hell let him shoot that many. Regardless, the Wizards are very far from being uh, anything we're talking about today. That's not actually true. Let's just get into it. All right, we had a really, really busy, very exciting week in the NBA. It's Friday, so covering kind of things going back to Monday real quick. Um, First off, uh, the first thing I want to talk about is Adrian Griffin, the head coach of the Milwaukee Bucks, is out. He's out after, what, like 42, 43 games and getting the Bucks. I mean, it's like how much credit can you really give to him versus just the team that's there in general. But the Bucks are sitting... Confidently at the second seed, they have a 31-13 and 13 record, 70% win rate. Um, this one's tough. This one's really tough. I'm definitely in the camp that they should have just never gotten rid of Mike Budenholzer to begin with. I know that there was problems with him, and uh, maybe he was not going to be the coach in the long term anyways. But to kind of highlight the few mistakes that he had made in the Miami series last uh, playoffs... In the, in the wake of him losing his brother and then and then kicking him to the curb when he's kind of the one that, like, built the team's foundational, like, identity and their culture and, and brought him to the finals and, and got him a chip anyways. I don't know. Shouldn't have, shouldn't have let him go. But regardless, brought in rookie head coach Adrian Griffin. And, you know, he's done, like, as best as you could imagine in terms of, like, a, a result. But... It appears from what I've seen that he just did not have the locker room. He did not have the players 
they weren't feeling him. I mean, once once uh, the photo of Giannis drawing up plays his damn self went out, it was kind of like, yeah, it, it's it's over for you, Adrian. But it is, I, I don't know, I feel like they really should have given him at least until the playoffs, see how that go. It feels like um, for a coach on a performance level, like this is just such a small sample size to be making really any judgment on. But at the same time, if he's lost the, the locker room, he's lost the locker room, and, and sometimes that's kind of un, un, untenable, unfixable. So Adrian Griffin out. And to make troublesome news in Milwaukee even worse, Doc Rivers is now the head coach of the Milwaukee Bucks. I cannot believe that. That was by far the dumbest thing they, they did. I'm I'm just so, 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 so lost. And I've reiterated on this podcast before that coaching is something I don't like to delve too far into because I don't know what it really, like everything that it takes to be a coach and whatnot and that perspective. But Doc Rivers has been a historic bag fumbler as a coach who's been given really, really good teams over the course of his career. He is the only coach to blow like consecutive or he has three blown 3-1 three uh, leads in, in the playoffs. Um, he's kind of just riding off of his 8 ring at this point, and that was done with like three Hall of Famers. So, yeah, I don't know if, if, if Milwaukee was like, you know, we've never had an embarrassing exit in the second round. I think we want one of those. Um, I am very much not in favor of the Milwaukee Bucks bringing on Doc Rivers, but it is what it is. Um, I think someone brought up a really good point of like, okay, rookie head coach that doesn't really have the respect of, of or attention of the players. What's worse, rookie head coach going into playoffs with maybe not all this respect or going into the playoffs with a, put aside it being Doc Rivers anyways, but with a coach that has... 30 games to kind of get adjusted. I mean, any faults that you have with the Bucks in terms of their performance, a lot of that can be chalked up to the fact that their entire identity and system got overhauled. They went from a defensive team to an offensive team overnight because of that Damian Lillard trade. So now you add on this, I don't know. I feel like it, it's even with the tremendous amount of talent that the Bucks have, this much rocking of the ship, it's going to be really hard to... Um, to show up and just stay solid through an entire playoff run, but talent can trump all. So we'll see. Um, I just I'm I'm very much not a fan of the Doc Rivers uh, move specifically. Also, he was like consulting Adrian Griffin apparently on how to you know help, and he was kind of like coaching him in coaching. Um, so unless Adrian Griffin's kind of knew what was going to happen anyway, that's kind of crazy to be like, hey man, you mind helping me with this problem I've got? Sure, man. And then you get fired and they just hire the dude that was helping you. That's a bit wild. Um, anyway, continue along with the uh, coaching news. Wes Unsell Jr. is out as the Wizards head coach. That's why I was like, actually, we will be talking about the Wizards. Um, he's not out in terms of being fired. Well, nah, I don't know. He's, he's not... He's not jobless. He's moving to the front office where I'm pretty sure his pops is because Wes Unseld is obviously someone who's had their jersey retired in the uh, Wizards uh, Raptors. But uh, So he's moving to the front office and the top assistant coach, Brian Keefe, has been promoted to that role. I, I really don't have 
a ton to say about this. I did not get an impression throughout this season that Wesson Sell Jr. was a particularly good coach anyways, but the Wizards are trash. I mean, the Wizards might be like the second or third very worst team in the league, so yeah, I don't know. It's like a, not, not being given a lot to thrive with, but... Whatever, you know, I don't think coaching was necessarily the biggest problem Washington had, but I hope it works for them. Uh, Anyways, we had some crazy, crazy stuff happen on Monday, Tuesday. I don't remember exactly what day it was at this point, but on the anniversary of Kobe's 81-point performance against the Toronto Raptors, Joel Embiid against the San Antonio Spurs put up 70 points, 18 rebounds, sorry, 5 assists, Um, And on very good efficiency, dominance, pure, pure dominance. And I don't even think he played the fourth quarter, or if he did, he played like a couple minutes of it. He barely played anything in the fourth quarter. This absolutely could have been the 82 game, uh, or 82 point game, even more, if not. I mean, there was just no one stopping him. Wemby got in foul trouble early, couldn't play the way he was going to want to, I guess. Um, and absolutely no one could stop Joel Embiid from getting to his spots, getting to the free throw line, which I guess you could consider one of his spots, but yeah, it was just complete automatic, um, and he, he did it in the shortest amount of time I think a player has ever put up 70 points, already a pretty illustrious group to be a part of, but he did it in, what, 37 minutes, so that's like unreal, like imagine if it was, he played 42 minutes, 43 minutes, Easily an 80-point game um, at the rate he was going at. And, I mean, this makes Joel Embiid... I'm not going to talk about it too much right now because I want to do a little, like, halfway through the season, even though we're a little bit past that, like, award show. Um, So I'm not going to talk about it too much, but this puts Joel Embiid at, like, 36 points on the season um, and in 34 minutes of action per game, which actually makes it the highest point-per-minute uh average for a player ever i think um even in wilt's 50 point averaged uh season back in you know 1486 or whenever that was um even that he was doing off of playing every single minute of of the games plus overtime so he was literally averaging over 48 minutes a game uh played so this is like per like pound for pound efficiency how many minutes are you going to be out on the court how many points can you get per that ratio Joel Embiid is having the greatest scoring season of all time. It's unreal. And on the same night in Minnesota, Cap put up 62. Very high scoring night in the NBA. There was also like a Durant 44 piece, some other stuff like that. But these are the two that we're going to talk about here. But Carl Anthony Towns, 62 points, 8 rebounds, 2 assists, 10 three-pointers. Um, that's crazy. And the I think the biggest standout about this game was... Cat had 44 points in the first half. I believe it might be the highest scoring first half in NBA history. Don't like hold me exactly on that, but it might. I'm, it, it, it might have been. I'm pretty sure it was. Um, and then he had 58 points going into the fourth quarter, where he only managed to get up two points uh, or four points because he was just. Uh, it makes sense, you know. It's it's Minnesota's franchise record. Um, so he has scored more points than a Timberwolf ever has. It's a big night. I get that you're going to be hunting for your shot. but And Chris Finch, the head coach of the Minnesota Timberwolves, was pretty pissed about it because they ended up losing this game. Um, 
And it's kind of because Cat really took it into his own uh, hands to hunt for shots and just throw things up. Uh, he was he was just missing and missing. He missed like three really open, easy shots in the fourth quarter. Kind of let the other team uh, get back into it and pull away eventually. Um, and I feel kind of like conflicted because like I know if I'm staring down the barrel of a 60-point game and I have a full quarter left to go, you better believe I'm letting that shit fly. But at the same time, winning basketball is winning basketball, and you're supposed to be making the right play regardless. If the right play is, hey, I'm, I'm hot as shit, give me the ball, then that's the right play. But if you continually miss and the other team that you buried in the third quarter is kind of crawling back, Cat, you should use your brain and go, hey, we should probably get this win first uh, or you know, extend that lead again, and then I can start putting up some more shots. But yeah, kind of, kind of fumbled that one, kind of didn't stick the landing, but hey, Either way, Cat went home that night as the uh, Minnesota Timberwolves, uh, or or the one that has the highest scoring game for Minnesota Timberwolves. So, I'm sure he didn't lose too much sleep over that. Uh, next piece of news that I want to talk about in the NBA. This one's a pretty funny one. This was two days ago, I think. Uh, Tristan Thompson of the Cleveland Cavaliers, if you can believe he is still on an NBA roster. He doesn't just bounce around on 10 days. I found that impressive. Um, but he's been suspended for 25 games for SARMs use. If you don't know what SARMs are, it's uh, selective androgen receptor modules. They're like diet steroids. Um, it's not even diet. They work like steroids, but they aren't um, androgenic, I believe is the term. I don't know. I used to be a gym bro, but a lot of this terminology is kind of faded from my mind. But it, it doesn't... It doesn't clock on, like, tests the same way as steroids do uh, deliberately, but it has the same effect uh, in, in, in effect. So, I mean, Lamau, that's all I can say. Tristan Thompson's putting up a whopping, like, three and a half points, four rebounds, warming up the bench. I'm not sure what he was doing taking steroids here. My only My only thought could be, He's just kind of getting older and wanted to be able to uh, to just like get up and go to practice with a bit more ease. Either that or he's working on his bedroom body, if you know what I mean, if you know what I mean. Um, either way, this is incredibly stupid. Uh, I think the NBA definitely probably has a performance-enhancing drug problem already. Um, this is kind of I – mean, it, it's, it's, it's pretty easy to pass these things historically – um, so this is kind of just Tristan Thompson being a, a, a bit of a bozo, uh, is, is really all I can say. But yeah, I found this very, very funny, and Tristan Thompson just can't help himself but cheat. He's going to cheat on a Kardashian, he's going to cheat on his drug test, he's going to cheat on everything. But he's got a championship, he's got an NBA championship, he's got a ring. Alright, and the last piece of news I want to talk about uh, before we get into my segments for this episode... Are, uh, or is the Pascal Siakam trade. So the Toronto Raptors have finally said, all right, we're, we're, we're done. We're, we're done with this era. We're going to move on um, and stop holding on to the remnant pieces of our 2019 championship. And the first move that they made in that was obviously the OG Ananobi trade, which we're going to talk all about in a second because you know as a Knicks homer, the first segment after it's been a while, uh, we got to talk about the Knicks. But... Then they traded Pascal, and they traded him to the Indiana Pacers, which I think is actually a really cool destination for Pascal to end up at. Um, he adds a bit of defense, a bit of um, uh, offensive creation on, on for himself, because um, 
you know, a lot of the uh, a lot of the Pacers can't really get their own thing going without uh, Halliburton uh, initiating basically every single offensive possession. So to have someone who can put the ball on the ground, get his own shot, um, that's pretty big. And he's played pretty decent actually so far in the uh, in the handful of games, less than a handful of games even uh, that he's been a Pacer. Um, and even had a, a really solid game against I don't remember who it was. It was like who they just. I think he had a really solid game against the Sixers like two nights ago. Was that even last night? Um, yeah, it was literally last night. Okay, yeah. He had a triple-double, 26 points, 10 assists, 13 rebounds. Um, I think this is a really, really good move for them. I think this puts the, uh, the Pacers from an exciting young team that I think was going to make a splash in the playoffs for the first time in this era of theirs this season to a team that's now genuinely a second round threat like hey we can not just make it to the playoffs we can win a series we can make a splash we can do some damage um and i think this is going to be a great season for them to kind of evaluate where they're at and what pieces they really need to push them to become like a true contender in the seasons going forward but um the i I don't remember exactly what the full trade package was um, Toronto did receive three first round picks for Pascal. And a lot of people weren't a fan of that because Pascal is on an expiring contract, which means technically they only have Pascal signed for the remainder of this season. And he could technically walk, but I do believe there's some sort of under the table agreement that Pascal is going to re-sign in Indiana. And if that's the case and you are going to get Pascal going into the future, I think it was a fair value trade. Pascal is, is really good. Uh, I think Toronto has a tendency to overvalue their players anyways uh, for the sake of trying to get the best package possible but doesn't change the reality that Pascal Siakam is a very good basketball player and he's going to do some damage on this team and apparently it said some stuff about like uh, one of his like dream pairings was to play with Miles Turner so Merry Christmas buddy you got that Um, and I I liked the Pacers before and I like them even more after this trade so very exciting big week in the NBA hope you enjoyed that little recap and um Let's get into the actual segments. All right. I know that I just came back from vacation and all, but we're going to go back to New York for this segment because a new era has has happened, is happening, is, is embarking on a new era in New York. I don't know. Words are not my specialty. Anyways, there's a new era in New York. First thing, first thing I got to say, Jalen Brunson, all, all-star. He's going to be. He's going to be. All right. He wasn't chosen as a starter, which... Is a bit upsetting, all right? I try not to be uh, too reactionary. And in general, I'm more of like a nomination over winner guy. That might sound weird, but by design, only one person can win an award. Or by design, only two guards can be all-star starters. Inherently, there's going to be people left off of that. So I'm not really too worried about that. I like when the person just got, gets brought into the conversation. It's an acknowledgement that they are at that level. However, Damian Lillard was selected as the all-star starter for the Eastern Conference, and I just disagree with that. Obviously, they are the second seed and are having an amazing season, and Dame is absolutely a large part of that, but you cannot tell me that he has been playing better than Jalen Brunson or Donovan Mitchell or Trey Young. Um, I I truly believe they deserve uh, the nod as an all-star starter over Dame. Uh, This feels very much like a like a legacy kind of 
kind of thing. You know when a when an actor is nominated like six times for an Oscar and they don't get it, and then on that seventh one, and and those six were like amazing all time performances in great films, and then they get nominated for something. Um, and then they end up finally winning one, but it was like for their like kind of like B tier performance, and you're like, kind of feels like this was a legacy choice, but whatever. Not trying to hate on Dame too much. He's had a great season so far. I just don't think he's been as good as uh, particularly some other guards. Nonetheless, not really the point. Jalen Brunson will be an All Star. Hopefully, Julius Randle is also an All Star. Anyways, the big thing we need to talk about obviously is the trade. So this happened on the. 30th of December, 31st, I think it was the 30th, um, while I was on vacation, I had not checked uh, online or on Twitter for like a full day and a half, two days at that point, which was very strange as someone who has basketball rattling around their head 24-7 and always has the availability to open up uh, Twitter or just search up news articles or whatever and uh, stimulate that that uh, urge to to. To basketball, but I hadn't in a while, so I was kind of in like a dark period, and I just opened up Twitter because I had some downtime, and I'm just absolutely flummoxed by what I see. So, full trade details. The Knicks gave up R.J. Barrett, Emmanuel Quickly, a 2024 second round pick, in exchange for O.G. Ananobi, Precious Achua, and Malachi Flynn. Um, so the first thing I definitely have to say is, you know, just as a Knicks fan... As a person, I'm heartbroken to see R.J. Barrett and Emmanuel quickly depart. I loved them as Knicks. They seemed like really cool people in general. Um, and I'm just sort of, you know, it, it's very bittersweet that this era is done in New York. I R.J.'s been like the young player for my team the entirety of the time that I've been into basketball. Um, and I've always, and I still hold very high uh, regard for him and think he can be a great player into his career. Um, the writing was a bit on the wall for sure. Um, I'll get into that in a second, but yeah, uh, on, on quickly side, it makes sense kind of, I mean, it doesn't from like my perspective as like, yo, you needed to re-sign quickly. He was absolutely an untouchable piece in my mind, but apparently it didn't really seem like the Knicks had much interest in extending him and giving him a decent sized offer. So if that's the case, then I would much rather see him thrive on a different team, as painful as that might be, um, than sort of suffer in a undescribed, underpaid role on the bench. Because, um, yeah, outside of not really having an interest in extending him, quickly didn't really have a like super solid role on the team. He was just sort of like, don't let our offense die while Jalen's sitting, please. Um, and so... Back to RJ. So for, for you know for quickly, kind of makes sense for that. And then on RJ side, as I was about to say, he was probably never going to flourish on this roster, um, particularly with him and Julius Randle together. Those are two isolation heavy, need the ball in my hand, slows down the offense kind of guys, um, and they're just kind of taking up each other's space. And uh, I get that. And ultimately, I hope that this is the best for both parties. Um, Joyce Randall clearly being like the better player in the now and with the Knicks on a, I don't want to say like short deadline, but like clearly we're, we're, we're head steaming towards trying to be a contender. So I get it. Um, honestly though, I'm not sure how I feel about the Knicks investing in Julius over RJ. I get that one is better right now, but one is also 29 while the other is 23. So 
I don't know. All, you know, RJ playing the way he's been playing in, RJ, uh, in Toronto isn't exactly surprising. I'll just say that. Um, not that he's like out of the world numbers, but his efficiency is is, is much much better. Um, and I just man, man, I'm just sad that RJ is no longer in New York Nick. That's basically the point of it. Um, but in the meantime, focusing on what we do have, Julius Randle has been incredible. Um, he's been great after the super bad start that he had. Um, but the the playoff question does absolutely still remain. So this uh, this offseason is going to be a really big test for him, for the Knicks in general going forward. Um, and RJ going back to Toronto, you know, RJ hometown kid is a really cool narrative. And uh, I'm definitely rooting for the core of Scotty Barnes, RJ Barrett, and Emmanuel quickly going forward as the uh, as the Raptors retool their roster or even just completely rebuild from the ground up with only those three guys. Um, I think that's a pretty fun core, so I'm rooting for them. And through this trade, there's kind of become a mutual camaraderie um, between Knicks fans and Raptors fans, and that's pretty cool. I like that. Um, I like alliances being formed like that. So, yeah, for the Knicks... I think OG's awesome. I think OG is really awesome. Uh, he's more efficient, for sure, than RJ, and this is not in, like, a, a taking shots kind of way, but he just, per you know, I'll get into it in a second. Sorry. Particularly as a catch-and-shoot three-point uh, shooter, um, OG in an OB is way better than RJ Barrett. RJ Barrett preferred off the dribble, like, t- objectively tougher to hit three-pointers, um, which... It is cool for sure, but as it pertains to working within a system, being a really good catch and shoot three point like knockdown shooter is great. OG Ananobi plays on way lower efficiency, obviously, and that just kind of lets Jalen and uh, Julius just have more room to cook and get things going there. Obviously, OG uh, OG is uh, also one of the two, three best perimeter defenders in the league, um, and in the time that he's been with us. Holy shit. So, first off, he had a plus 111, which uh, which was the highest plus minus for a player for the first five games with any franchise in NBA history. So, this is like, this is like value, man. This is impact, man. All right? That's my new name for, uh, for OG Ananobi is he's, he's a superhero and he's impact, man. Um, so highest plus minus through the first five games with a new team in NBA history. The Knicks have had the number one offense since the trade and are 11 and two. So we've been absolutely dominant. The offense looks great. The defense it's there. It's awesome. I'm really happy with the Knicks after the, um, the kind of scare that we experienced in the wake of Mitchell Robinson's injury, which we'll get to that in a second as well. But to continue, uh, praising OG for a second, um, I'm, I'm, I'm really liking the way that his presence sort of just frees up the offense. I mean, I keep harping back to it, but when you don't have a guy who really the only way that they can score effectively is getting their own stuff going. And the Knicks, I mean, I've talked about it before, the Knicks were bottom of the league in, like, pace and assist percentage. You didn't need guys like that. That was, that was hurting the cause, so... He keeps the, the he keeps the offense moving even when he does decide to pursue his own shot. The decision making is very decisive, and the kind of the running theme to him is like whether he decides to to pass or he decides he's gonna drive or put up a shot. Whatever it is, it's very decisive. He doesn't 
He doesn't take too long to make that decision, and he keeps the offense moving regardless. Um, and that's big, I think. And the uh, there was announcer. I don't remember if it was the MSG announcers because I don't I don't think it was Clyde. I don't think it was Clyde. But um, announcers during the Knicks Wizards game on the sixth of January, um, they mentioned this, and it's exactly how I feel. But it feels like the Knicks can really go on runs now and just put teams in a deep hole with consecutive possessions of scoring, build up like a quick 10, 12, 14-point lead out of just nothing because they can really just suddenly get it going in a way they couldn't before. Because if you wanted to score on consecutive possessions, you needed to slow down the offense each time you brought up the ball and give it to the person who is most likely to cook in that scenario versus just this way more free-flowing natural system where the ball's moving and it's just generating way better looks. It's great. It's like two fundamentally different kinds of offense, one of them which just does not work in the modern NBA, unfortunately, that being what we had formerly, and now we have what we do have. So that's great. Um, love OG. Uh, poor kid is already being abused by uh, Tom Thibodeau, who is played him like 42 minutes in the past like in in like three of the past like five games or something like that (laughs) i mean he played with nick nurse so i know he's i know he's used to it but i just i i i hate seeing like uh i hate seeing tibbs make up for a lack of being able to draw up good offensive plays so he just just hammers the players who are having good games and makes them play 40 minutes every single night just to win. And it's just like, hey, man, that's not fucking sustainable, dude. I don't know what to tell you. Um, But something to keep an eye out for all my Knicks fans, third quarter OG Ananobi. That's a bad man, all right? He can really turn it up in the third quarter. Um, And third third quarter specialist guys are particularly lethal in the NBA. So, that's OG. Um, for the other guys on the uh, you know, part of the trade, Preston Achua and Malachi Flynn, I don't really have any strong thoughts on them, really. I'm not sure either are going to have concrete roles, particularly in the playoffs. They average 12 and 5 minutes so far uh, each, respectively. Um, Flynn has had, like, a couple of moments. Uh, he got, like, 10 points against the Grizzlies, but, you know, whatever. Big thing is, like, we just kind of don't really need another small backup point guard. Um, but I do find it funny that he's the evil Dante DiVincenzo. If you don't understand what that means, look up Dante DiVincenzo, look at a picture of his face, and then look up Malachi Flynn and look at a picture of his face, and it'll make sense. Um, but anyways, that's, you know, he's cool, whatever. Uh, I'm sure he will be moved um, at, at some point for something. Um, and Precious Achua has, hasn't been great to you know not good so so at some points uh during during his his tenure so far um he had a good game against the raptors in 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 that bout um that was super cool but so far hasn't hasn't really done much that i'm particularly wild by he can grab the hell out of a rebound though and that that's cool that definitely fits the knicks identity um along with just like playing hard making those hustle plays um and that's cool, you know, it, it, it fits. And he's another big body to throw at the center position, um, particularly while Isaiah Hardenstein is also out right now. We'll talk about that in a second. But, yeah, it, it's good to have him as a physical body for the meantime. I don't really see pressure to probably being on the Knicks long term unless he just kind of, like, 
hides and ends up on the bench while we're like a really, really good team and like people just kind of forget to move him at any point. But uh, yeah, um, speaking of though, the backup, um, the backup to the backup really, Mitchell Robinson, got to give an update on him real quick because he might be coming back by the end of the season. Um, the NBA denied the Knicks' disabled player exception for that reason because there's, I guess, strong evidence that he would be able to make a return by either like the start of the playoffs or the like last, last stretch of the regular season. Don't know what it is, um, but that's really cool. I'm very excited by that. I would like to err on the side of caution I don't know how many times we've seen a player rush back in time for the playoffs just to then need to get like corrective surgery over the offseason because they like re-aggravated their injury because they probably shouldn't have come back in time. Um, I just don't want to see this affect Mitchell Robinson's like career. So if if we don't have him for this year's playoffs, that sucks. But I would rather that over uh, uh, over like a like. 50% Mitchell Robinson kind of there. But if he's back, then he's back, you know? I'm I'm good with that. Um so I'll kind of have to see how that goes as we get closer to a return date or closer to the playoffs and uh yeah, I don't really know what to say, man. It has been a wild wild ride as a Knicks fan so far this season. A, a absolute roller coaster of ups and downs and we're back, and it's so over. So it's very nice that we're at a we're back point, and it's been pretty pretty consistent for the past, you know, 13, 14 games. Um, and I think a big part of that is because of Mitchell Robinson's replacement at the moment. Uh, so I have to give love to Isaiah Hardenstein because he's been playing amazing, way better than I think most of us imagined he would. Um, he, he really, really stepped up. He's been an uh, a monster uh, def- rim protector, rebounder, the same way we saw with Mitchell Robinson. He's ha- he had, um, he's already had like three or four games with like 20 rebounds. Uh, one of them was like 19, but still, he's been a monster. Way better than I think we, we, we thought. Uh, unfortunately, he has missed the past two games, which has ended his 164-game uh, Ironman streak of, of not missing a game, if you don't know what an Ironman streak means. Um, for a re-aggravated Achilles pain, uh, something that he was dealing with throughout a lot of last season, but uh, and even made him opt out of playing with Germany in the FIBA World Cup. Could have gotten himself a chip, but I'm sure he's not too, he, you know, he's whatever. Um, but he is currently listed as day to day, so he should be back soon. I don't think it's anything crazy. I think it's just flared up in his in the in the hyper use that Tibbs gives him. Um, but he's been amazing. He stepped up really, really big. He's been nearly as good of a defensive anchor as Mitchell Robinson. But the thing with Isaiah Hardenstein is the offense looks way better. All right, he can make quick decisions and passes either as a dribble handoff partner. Or under the basket. He has these touch passes under the rim to either like a cutter coming to the side or to like the man behind him if he's getting double team under the rim. And he can just do these really quick touch passes. They're a thing of beauty. And it's it's sort of like like for when it comes to big men, especially in the uh especially in the playoffs, you can be tiered completely separately based off of one thing. And that one thing is what decisions do you make when you get doubled down low? 
And so Isaiah Hardenstein has proven that he is on that upper tier because he makes the smart reads. He keeps the ball moving. He knows how to clear himself up when he's in a double team. Um, it's been great. Keeps the offense going. It looks way more connective when um, when he's when he's playing and he's in the lineup. And so this is kind of my thing. I think when Mitchell Robinson comes back, Isaiah Hardenstein should still be the starting center for the Knicks. I don't care about the minute splits or who ends up, you know, playing. And this has nothing to do with Mitchell Robinson, who I want to reiterate was playing like a goddamn defensive player of the year candidate. And this is only really a conversation we're having because of an unfortunate, untimely injury that has left him absent. And also, he was a top four rebounder in like the league or whatever. But I hate the idea of pitting these two against each other because... They seem like, in real life, very good friends, and I don't like causing division within my own team. Um, but So hopefully Mitch Robinson would be kind of open to that. I, I know it kind of makes it seem or feel like he's, he's being cucked out of a role, but I just think the team looks uh, way better on offense as it pertains uh, or with Isaiah Hardenstein and not like worse defensively to the point where Mitch Robinson should be starting above. And again, minutes like split I don't care I just think like in terms of like your starting lineup in terms of like putting your best foot forward um Mitchell Mitchell Robinson is best not being the starter I think starting out the game especially in the playoffs with Isaiah Hardenstein is the best move so yeah sorry just wanted to make a little little clip there so I would have enough time to get through the rest of the Knicks stuff um, but there's this uh, there's this tweet that I want to talk about really quickly because it's, uh, it has some interesting factoids as it pertains to uh, shot selection and shot quality for the Knicks. And just want to give a few thoughts on that. This is from Basketball Reference, and this is from last night. Um, this tweet was made. Shout out to uh, DJ Ace NBA. Um, seems to be a Knicks fan, so shout out to him um, for this for this uh, little little thing here. But it's a New York Knicks three-point shot quality, and it's graded. So the higher the grade, the easier the shot, and then it's just raw shooting percentage after that. This is three-point again. Um, so I think the biggest standouts are um, Josh Hart has an A-plus in terms of shot quality. He's taking very easy open shots, but he's only shooting 32% from three. Josh Hart needs to be better than that. He's been a bit disappointing, I'm not going to lie. Um and then the other one that really, really stands out is Jalen Brunson, who has a shot grade or, or quality grade of F. He is taking tough shots. This is like a, a, a Kobe graph right here. And he's shooting 42% from three. So, you know, uh, DJ Ace here at the end of the at the end of the, uh, the stats puts, what does this tell you? What this tells me is that Jalen Brunson is one of the greatest three-point shooters of all time. We don't need to get into that. We don't need to have that conversation. But... Yeah, just wanted to throw that out there. Also, uh, Dante DiVincenzo takes high-quality, easy-graded shots and is shooting 42% from three, so that's great. We love the big ragu. I continue to um, praise the Knicks for making that move, even though people didn't really see, like, Dante DiVincenzo. Like, what does he do? He's like a backup for the Warriors. I was like, hey, man, we really need that outside shooting, and he's been all of that and more so far uh, for the Knicks. So, shout-out to him. Um... I think the last thing I want to talk about as a, uh, for the Knicks is that Quentin Grimes really seems to be on the trading block. Uh, not even seems, he just absolutely is on the trading block um, because the Knicks are 
in constant talks um, and pursuing more deals to, to, to keep building and maybe find a move. Thankfully, it doesn't seem like the Knicks are rushing to make a move. They are not like impatient to uh, have some type of signing. If, if they don't find the right one, they'll, they'll hold their breath. They'll kind of wait and, and buy their time, um, which I'm very thankful for that we're not just like, oh, who's on the market? Ah, oh, fuck it. I guess we'll take this guy and give you one of our genuinely good pieces. We should have only gave up for like a, a, a really good piece in return. Um, but there's a lot of talks about a potential swap of like a Quinton Grimes for like Bruce Brown, who is now on the Raptors. He was sent in the OG Ananobi trade. I I hate this. I hate so much of this. Quinton Grimes should not be on the trading block. He is a fantastic defender. He's a knockdown shooter. When you give him some breathing room, when you let him have a game or two that's bad and build his confidence and not immediately send him to the fucking bench, he's really good. He's great. He's going to do everything that you would want Bruce Brown to do. And Bruce Brown's contract is up at the end of uh, next season, in which it's very likely he ends up just signing with the, the Denver Nuggets and going home again. Because I don't think he really wanted to leave the Denver Nuggets, but they couldn't offer him his max money. So he was like, you know what? I'm going to go get a bag for two years and then I'll be back. That seems kind of like what it's going on. So I would hate to lose Quentin Grimes, not just for Bruce Brown, who I don't think really moves the needle that much, but also for a season and a half of Bruce Brown. So, you know, I'm not going to say anything else besides that for right now, but I just, I hate this. I hate all the news around this. And I'm routinely frustrated by the Knicks front office kind of giving in to Tom Thibodeau, who's like, yeah, this, this player just doesn't, doesn't like to work hard. Uh, and then they trade the guy who everyone else was like, uh, I, th- I like this guy. So I just think we really need to stop building around Tom fucking Thibodeau um, and, and making every move to his whim. Um, he's done, he's moved mountains. He's done amazing things. I will be eternally grateful for Tom Thibodeau's tenure as a Knicks coach. He has helped coaches back into relevancy. He has 500 uh, plus wins. He's like the fourth um, winningest Knicks coach now. Um, he's done amazing things. However, he is a hard ass about certain things, and those certain things I think are going to hinder us from taking the next step. And some of that is like he just he just gives up on on players when they don't when he's not able to just like work them to the bone. Um, apparently, I don't know how much of this is true, but apparently. Uh, Tom Thibodeau kind of got soured, was soured to to uh, to Quinn Grimes after Quinn Grimes sat out uh, the last two games, was it, of the Heat series in the playoffs for an injury that we all saw. We all know that clip of Quinn Grimes hurting himself and limping and getting back up and then guarding Jimmy Butler and then stealing the ball from Jimmy Butler. The dude's a dog, but he's decided to sit out after that, probably because he wants to have a career. And, and and Tom Thibodeau's like, oh, guess he's not a dog. You know, he can go. You know, whenever we find a good trade, he can go. And so I just I just hate that. Um, and, and hopefully Tom Thibodeau should not be the, the New York Knicks coach long term. I know that's a very divisive thing to say in the Knicks community. But I, I believe that so, so truthfully. I don't think we're, we're going to take a, a, a super, super next step. Um, with this dude kind of running some of the players into the ground and zapping them of confidence and uh, punishing them in in very limited 
sample sizes of poor performances, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We'll talk more about the Knicks as we get closer to the playoffs, of course, and we'll always talk about the Knicks whenever there's anything interesting to bring up. But, yeah, uh, the Knicks are a good playoff team again after that sort of uh, brief moment of, oh, this season's a wash. Got started off pretty good, and then our Defensive Player of the Year center got injured and is done. Um, and it, the kind of entire M.O. of the next season changed overnight. But we're back, and we're back better than ever. We're the fourth seed. Uh, we're like one win out of the of the third seed. We're coming for you, Philly. Um, and a lot of Knicks fans seem to really think we can we can get that third seed by the end of the season, which would be really cool. Um, but yeah, conference finals, here we come. I would like to say, if the Bucks make it to the conference finals and the Knicks make it to the conference finals, obviously I am going to say, oh, Knicks are going to win in any series. I think we could beat the Bucks. We've played them so much this season already. I just think, I've said it before, playoffs are about matchups. They're not necessarily about who's like the better team. One team that loses in the first round might have been a better matchup for the team that ends up going to the finals. That's just how that happens sometimes. I think the Knicks are one of those teams that, yo, the Bucks do not want to run into them. We give them a tough time. We're coming, Milwaukee, especially now that you have Doc Rivers. Especially now that you have Doc Rivers. Even if you were to go up 3-1 against us, I wouldn't care. I'm familiar with your game. So, uh, yeah. Anyways, that's all I'm going to say on the Knicks for now. But but things are looking pretty good in, uh, in New York. So, I'm very, very happy. All right. All right. So, our next segment, we're going to talk about the Memphis Grizzlies. Kind of briefly. Don't have a ton to say. Um, other than just, my God, the, the way the basketball gods have just hurled meteors at this poor team this entire season. So, after just nine games, John Morant is done for the season. He's undergo, He will undergo, maybe has, I don't know, uh, but is to undergo season-ending injury uh, after tearing uh, the labrum, which is a thick tissue or type of cartilage, uh, in his right shoulder. Uh, during team practice, and I think that's a real salt-on-the-wound kind of thing. Um, so this is devastating for the Grizzlies, obviously. Um, after the team had an abysmal start to the season, much worse than I think any of us really thought was going to happen, they started looking half-decent with Job back. They went 6-3 and three in the nine games with him. That's a 67% win record versus like the 38% win record they have on the season as a whole. Um they were looking really good, and I, you know, it's it's this is tough, especially when having been torn during team practice kind of makes it feel like it could have been something avoidable. I, I, you know, Ja came back from from a twenty five game suspension. Obviously, within the first nine games, he's not going to sit out. He wants to do as much as possible to 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 bring the Grizzlies back, and and he really, really was. But I think maybe he went a little too hard, a little too quick, or something like that. Hurt himself, but was like, no, I can't stop. Like I just came back. And then ended up, you know, pushing himself a little too far and having that tear. Kind of, kind of the thing I was talking about with the Mitchell Robinson thing. Like, just when, when players kind of push themselves a little too hard, it ends up fucking them in the long run. And the team that they're on, if it's a, you know, John Morant kind of valued player. Um, but the Grizzlies were granted a uh, $12.4 million uh, disabled player exception by the NBA for Ja. They have until March 11th to use it. I don't really know how that works, but whatever. Um... I think the silver lining in general is that doesn't seem like that's that bad of an injury. I think 
it's more of a precautionary thing that they so immediately were like, all right, he's done for this season. Like, he's done for this season. Because they probably don't want to make the same mistake of maybe bringing him back just to injure him and have him out for even longer. So I think with the way this season had been going um, and then with some of the other things I'm about to talk about in a second, it was just smarter to uh, to, to kind of just shut, shut Jaw down for the season. To add insult to injury, of course, Desmond Bain is out. So this is news that came out like two weeks ago. So adjust for that. But the dude had a left ankle injury. He was in he was in a boot and on crutches. I'm not sure if he still is, but to be reevaluated in six weeks. So that would be like a month from now. Um, and on top of that, Marcus Smart also out for six weeks. And this happened within a few days. I think the Marcus Smart thing might have actually happened a couple days before Desmond Bain. Either way, within three days at most i think both of these reports came out he'll be out for six weeks so again that's like a month from now with a severe right ring finger injury um relative to everything else that's happening uh and relative to the other things on the memphis grizzlies injury report this is uh not the end of the world i suppose but it is still just kind of blow after blow for the grizzlies this season um, and especially for Marcus Smart, he was coming off of having three really good games, posting 29 points, 23 points, uh, 25 points, five assists in one game, six assists in another, shooting around 52% uh, over that stretch. I'm not going to say Marcus Smart has been particularly good or hugely impactful for the Grizzlies this uh, so far this season. And even in saying that, it's only fair to acknowledge that he's missed half of the season already so far. But still, in what we've seen... But it really looked like he was kind of getting things going. And so when a player gets it going and then uh, it just, you know, it sucks. It sucks. Uh, and Marcus Smart seems like a really cool guy. So I don't I don't wish that kind of thing for, for a guy like him. So, you know, all these injuries and, and whatnot, um, preventative measures, maybe shutting jaw down for like a whole season or whatnot, um, I think it's probably the best in the long run. Like, like I said um, in a Grizzlies segment from – uh, another one of these episodes, this team wasn't going to be super competitive regardless. People, I think people came to forget that Brandon Clark and Steven Adams have been out, will be out. Um, and those are two really important um, uh, important pieces for the Grizzlies, particularly as it comes to not being eaten alive on the interior like they did in the playoffs. Um, and so I don't think the Grizzlies would have been more than like a first round exit, honestly, anyways. So, what's the point in, like, actively adding on uh, pressure and adding additional risk that you really don't need to throw on your players um, just to, like, squeak into the playoffs and or play-ins and then win a game there and go to the, uh, go to the you know, first round and then get knocked out by, like, the Thunder or Wolves in six games or something like that. Just, like, not really worth it. You know, there is something definitely to say for playoff experience, but it's like you're... You're, you would be like Frankensteining the, the corpse of this team into the playoffs by that point. It's just better to kind of shut it down, let everybody recoup and come back 100% next season, and uh, hopefully they'll be able to bounce back when they're fully healthy. So, yeah, keeping, keeping, keeping you in my thoughts and prayers, Grizzlies. <laughs> All right, and next segment, we're going to be moving to Detroit. This is the long-awaited, at least for me, uh, update on the Detroit Pistons because I promised I would keep uh keep keep 
with them as they were on their historic record uh, attempting streak. Oh, clearly, they didn't want to attempt it, but a lot's happened since. So we have a lot to talk about here. The Pistons did end up going on to set the record for uh, consecutive losses in a single season uh, with 28 losses in a row, beating the previous record of 27 set by the 2011 Cavaliers and the 2014 Sixers. I had originally thought the record was 28, but it turns out that's for consecutive losses just in general, not uh, in one season. So that was achieved by the uh, 2014, 2015, and 2015-2016 Sixers. Um, so we're talking about like right at the start of that like process era, just a just a brutally bad team. Um, but so they, they achieved a 28-game losing streak over two seasons, but the Pistons have now done it in one season. So, yay! You know, at least you at least you're the winners of the losers, right? That's like something. Um, but then on on the same day as the Knicks trade, so it was the thirtieth. I guess I had it further down in my notes, but on the same day as the Knicks trade, they snapped it. They won. They narrowly defeated the Toronto Raptors, 129 to 127. Which, listen. I at some point it had to happen, right? I, I I joke about the Pistons a lot, but unless they were genuinely a team constructed of like actual junior varsity players, they were bound to win eventually, you know. But nonetheless, you don't want to be that team that kind of gives them their first win in eons. Um, so Raptors, I bet they were feeling pretty silly when that happened, but huge win for them. Um, and uh, and then it was kind of right back to usual because they went on a like eight nine game losing streak after that, but then they beat the Wizards on the fifteenth, uh, and then they beat the Hornets on the twenty fourth. Oh shit! The Pistons are now five and uh, thirty nine. Five and thirty nine or five and forty. Five and thirty nine. Let's go. Um, so listen, this is a this is a super low bar. All right, this bar is on the floor. It is below sea level, actually. However, three wins in a couple of weeks or two wins in a couple of months. Uh, One of those sounds a lot better than the other, doesn't it? So, I don't know. Definitely probably a, a stretch to say, like, tides are turning there. But it does feel to an extent that um, Monty Williams and the front office organization just in general is slowly figuring out how to best maximize this really shitty roster. Turns out they need space. I'm just saying, Detroit, if you wanted to hire me, I could have told you that for less than 13 mil a year or whatever you're paying Monty Williams, but whatever. So kind of feels like they're 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 learning a bit um, how to put out better lineups. Um, not that there's like a not that it was a secret formula, and not that there was uh, that there's much to really uh, play around with, but still, you put out the best you can, and put out as much spacing as possible, um, and then something to go along with this, uh, and why I genuinely think maybe hey we're we're turning a new leaf in Detroit is uh, is their signing. They made a trade with the Wizards um, for Danilo Gallinari and Mike Muscala, and are saying bye bye to Isaiah Livers and Marvin Bagley the third. So this is bringing in some very, very, very needed shooting and spacing, obviously, from Danilo Gallinari and Mike Muscala, who are both like 6'10", 2", with, and, and are shooting like uh, our career, basically, like 40-point, 3-point shooters. So yeah, I think that's huge for them. 
Also, Isaiah Livers was like, like pound for pound value wise, like I think by like box plus minus, whatever, by a lot of advanced metrics, genuinely one of the worst players in the entire NBA this season. Um, definitely, probably the worst player on the Pistons, which is a title in and of itself. Um, but he was just doing absolutely nothing for them. So just in general, cool, you got him gone in exchange for plus players. Um, and then Marvin Bagley, uh, the third was, you know, he's cool. He's an offensive center. Um, and was, I mean, he was like barely playing though. They have a, they have a really, the Pistons have a really weird thing with their center. They don't really know what they're doing at half the time. It feels like Jalen Durden is clearly the best and, and their go-to. He was injured for a while. Um, and it just, the Pistons didn't know what to do between Marvin Bagley and James Wiseman. James Wiseman, who probably just shouldn't be in the NBA at this point. But um, they, they got, Marvin Bagley was like, I feel like he wasn't playing good with the Pistons, but it was like that unique to just Marvin Bagley might actually be a Pistons thing and not him um, versus the Pistons just having a bunch of really shitty players. No, Marvin Bagley's actually been a is, a, is a decent player. And in his handful of games with the Wizards, he's been averaging like 20, 20 points, 10 rebounds. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to, to, to praise Marvin Bagley into this, um, into this kind of player that he definitely isn't, but he was just, you know, just a sort of thing. And every team kind of has, like, one player sometimes, unless it's, like, a contender who absolutely has their entire roster dialed in. But a lot of teams sort of have that, like, one player that really just feels like an odd man out. They don't really know what to do with him. Usually isn't, like, he isn't the worst player on the team. They just don't know how to fit him in with clearly, like, what they're trying to do. Marvin Bagley ended up kind of being that odd man out. And so I'm glad that he's on the Wizards and can, you know, maybe stand on his own two feet and uh, and, and put up some good numbers and, and whatnot. Again, don't think he's, like, crazy good, but I'm rooting for anybody to kind of get unshackled from the chains of the Troy Pistons. Um, I do want to put this out there. Now, this is me being on some real next-level hater timing, all right? I acknowledge that. But with us being just, like, halfway through the season, there is potential for the Pistons to go on just as bad, if not a worse streak, with the time remaining. Again, that's me being on a real hater thing. It spits in the face of all I just said, that they're turning around a new leaf. It feels like a, a fresh, a fresh uh, new beginning in, in Detroit. But I'm also not going to deny the Pistons' ability, or doubt rather, the Pistons' ability to be ass. I don't think it's going to happen. It would be it would be genuinely insane if the Pistons not only set the single season losing record, but did it twice in the same season. They were like, "Damn, going on a 28 game losing streak was so nice. We had to do it twice." Um they would have to really have something uh cataclysmic uh happen, really throw a wrench in the and the things they've been scheming recently um, that has clearly had an upwards trajectory. Um, but kind of the only reason I even put it out there is because Cade's been out for a bit now. Um, he had a, a left knee strain playing against the Nuggets on the 7th. Nothing crazy, I don't believe, but he has been out for nearly three weeks. Um, so he should be back soon, but yeah, I don't know. He was maybe supposed to come back on Wednesday, but didn't. I don't know if that's just like, oh, we're going to wait another game or two, or if that's like there was a new development. I don't know. Um, but 
the Pistons are already historically bad with Cade. We knew that. They have to fight tooth and nail, do everything right, and be carried by, like, Cade putting up 30 and 5, uh, just to be in the game late, late down the stretch, right? But then you take him off, and this might genuinely be one of the worst basketball teams of all time. Now, again, this is, like, kind of thoughts I was having before this trade and before them kind of being on a roll a role for them, all right? Again, we're, all of this stuff is being, uh, all of our expectations are being managed and relative, all right? But hopefully when you add Cade back in, they're able to um, to, to keep that, that train going. And I just, I don't know what the, what uh, what's a good place to say they should aspire to. Like, it sounds insane to be like, man, it would be, it would show that they had a really solid second half of the season if the Pistons ended up winning 10 more games or something like that, and they ended up being, like, 15 and, and goddamn, like, uh, 68 or whatever that would be. Um, that's obviously awful, but comparatively to how it went, you know, you can't ask for too much more. They're not going to be – the Pistons aren't going to be a 20-game uh, or 21-game uh, uh, team. So, um, I don't know. I just think the the possibilities for them to be uh, – to go on a – really, really, really bad losing streak again is still absolutely there. Even though they have two new guys who fundamentally add in a lot more to their offense and should hopefully make it a lot more competitive in this modern NBA's context of, doggy, you need shooters out here. I don't know what to tell you. Um, but if, I don't know, if, if like, if one of them, like if Danilo Gallinari tweaks his ankle and Cade Cunningham breaks a finger or something, we could instantly be looking at another 20-plus game losing streak from the Pistons. Out of nowhere. We could wake up one day and suddenly they're on a 17-game losing streak. And we're like, oh, shit, is this about to happen again? That's basically my point. So, sorry to kind of end it on a hater note, but um, but the Pistons have been doing much better. So, I, 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 I'm just teasing. All right. So, that's my update on the Pistons. All right. I've got a fat, juicy, chunky segment uh, for this one now. It's time to move over to Golden State. There's been a handful of developed developments recently, and I also just think it's like a, a good time to sort of take a step back and evaluate, have an honest conversation about this team and its future, and you know where they are right now, where they're going, um, and particularly because we're halfway through the season now, and they look rough. It's been bad. So uh, first and foremost, I do want to uh, acknowledge the death in the family. The Warriors, I know, are still. Uh, and will continue to be for quite some time, mourning the loss of their assistant coach, uh, Dejan Milojevic. I hope I pronounced that right. I'm, apologies if I didn't. He unfortunately suffered a um, seemingly surprising uh, heart attack uh, on the road in Salt Lake City when they were to play the Utah on the 16th. The Warriors then had the following two games uh, postponed. Um, I can't speak to the specific impact that this individual had on the team, <clears throat> but it is clear by the reaction, not just internally, but league-wide, uh, to the news of his untimely death, that this was a beloved individual and someone who will be dearly missed in a lot of ways, not just as a basketball coach. So I want to acknowledge that and um, show a little bit of like uh, of sensitivity and knowledge that like they just lost someone really, really close to them. The The... There, it's hard to you can't put like a specific oh okay the next five games don't count they had a tragedy like it doesn't really work like that but gonna add that sort of like a little asterisk going forward for a decent stretch that 
they're a little rattled internally. All right, so all the stuff I'm gonna I'm mentioning because I'm about to become a hater. I'm 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 gonna get kind of toxic here. Um, that a lot of this is kind of what we have seen so far, and then kind of the uncertainties I have going forward because of that. So, um, rest in peace to uh, assistant coach Dayan Milojevic and to thoughts and prayers to the Warriors and to his family, of course. Um, so the first thing I want to talk about as it pertains to the players is the return of Draymond Green, who's, you know, back from his r- retreat, we'll call it. Um, Draymond's only played 16 games so far this season. He has missed the majority of the games so far. The Warriors are 7-10 and 10 with Draymond, 11-13 and 13 without. The Warriors have a 115.5 defensive rating with Draymond, a 122.3 defensive rating without. The Warriors have a 117.7 offensive rating with Draymond, a 119.9 offensive rating without. Basically, they're a bit worse on defense and a bit better on offense when he's not playing. But there's not a whole lot of difference, and that's kind of startling. That's that's, That's the point I'm making at. I think by far Draymond's most valuable attribute that he has to offer on court at this point at any point, to be honest, in his career, was and is his playmaking. And it's definitely needed, considering how stale Golden State's offense has been. Um, but but Draymond has not been, in the limited kind of uh, usage that he's had, he's not been a game-changer so far. Um, and considering the limited impact that he kind of has at this point in his career, like, I mean, he's just kind of a... He's a screen-setter and a... And a and a, and a dribble handoff partner and will throw some like you know needle bounce passes occasionally and um and maybe get like one block a game and then go like ah, ah, and like ignore the entire like offensive possession i always find that stuff really funny but regardless there's just like you know even the good stuff he's doing it's just it's it's slowly shrinking in quantity and thus like sheer scale of production and impact um, and so, considering that limited impact, and the fact that the Warriors already routinely have to cope with not having Draymond available anyways, whether it be, uh, you know, uh, maybe like a literal injury, or he sits out a game because he's getting older, or a suspension, which he's had multiple of this season, as we know. Um, I just, I don't think that this is a cornerstone guy anymore. Uh, and not in the sense that, like, the organization... Um, or front office, whatever you, uh, shouldn't value Draymond and should just kick him to the curb, you know. Thanks for thanks for everything, pal. You know, later, man. But the way I see it, Draymond Green is a backup center. At least he should be. Um, he's been coming off the bench in the three games since his return. Um, and the offense definitely looks refreshed with his ball movement that's undeniable but i think that says way more about golden state than draymond um so i think draymond this is the the, the problem though really is the kevon looney who i adore kevon looney i think he's awesome but kevon looney is also not really a starting center at least maybe not at this point in his career so the warriors kind of need to to fill that gap they have been in the market for a uh, seven footer that can score which no shit. I mean, I feel like every team wants that. But if you were to get something like that, I think putting Dre uh, permanently on the bench would be great. Especially if you had, like, I mean, you know, the, the, 
the Bulls, the Bulls should probably have all of their players stripped away from them for not trading them at this point. Uh, Nikola Vucevic, Nikola Vucevic on the Warriors. I think that could be pretty cool. Um, but anyways, yeah, it's basically. I'm just. I'm really. I'm really not sold on the. Per, on the value that Draymond still has, to the extent that I'm like, yeah, this is still your starting four or your starting five in a, in a playoff run. I don't. I know. I'm. I'm pretty far away from feeling that. Um, and I guess maybe that'll change if the Warriors just completely overturn um, and their offense just like skyrockets back up and Draymond's like, no nonsense from here on out. But we'll get into all that. Um, the problem that exists is, you know, is how willing will Draymond be to take on that much smaller on-court role and contribute in other ways that he can. And and that brings up the big question with the Warriors, which is uh, if, if the old members of the dynasty, not the dynasty itself, which has clearly needed some change and to be refreshed for seasons now, but are are they ready to embrace the next chapter? Draymond... Personally, I believe he does hold the capacity to take a step back and recognize his place and where he can best be utilized and and um, take a step back, especially after this most recent debacle. I mean, I, I said it before and I kind of stand by it. Like I, a lot of that, I think, was showmanship and, and parade, and I don't think there was a profound change internally in like Draymond's heart and soul after this most recent uh, like 15-game suspension or whatever it was. Maybe there was. I don't want to speak on the man too much, but I don't think like I think I think Draymond will continue to kind of be the person he's always been, um, and but maybe he won't be. And if that's the case, hey, cool. But I'm you know I'm still a little I'm still a little not convinced that he will absolutely sort of like um, fall on the grenade and platform the you know champion the next person who should kind of take his role. Um, and just do what he can from a you know from the bench and in a in a smaller role. And I'm gonna touch on the on or I'm gonna touch more on Draymond in a second. But first, I wanna and and just the the core members of the Warriors dynasty. But I wanna first run through some non-core members and just kind of briefly talk about them. Uh, I like Dario Saric. I said he'd be good for the Warriors, and I think he has been. Uh, 10 points, 5 rebounds, like 2.5 assists, 40% from 3 in 20 minutes a game. Um, 6'10", good size. Uh, I, you know, I like him. Uh, I don't, you know, he's, not, he's not a game changer. If he was to be moved for a really good player, I would not stop that. But I think Darius Sarge has consistently been a positive from the like limited role that he has. Uh, Chris Paul, who has been injured and is to be reevaluated um, after surgery on a left fractured hand, um, but Chris Paul has not been super impactful. There is value in his playmaking, absolutely, kind of like I said with um, with Draymond, but that jump shot of his has just gotten worse and worse. All right? He's averaging a career-low nine points on career-low 42% from the field, and obviously Chris Paul wasn't brought in for his scoring. I, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're listening to this right now and you're going, what? Like, nobody brought Chris Paul in to, to average 20. Um, and yes, that's obviously very true, but from the Warriors perspective, you made the CP deal as a win now move to prolong your prime, uh, of, of your core and maximize your offensive firepower, like of what's there with a clay, a Steph, 
a, a Wiggins or whatnot, and just kind of add on some all-time playmaking. You know, hey, we're going to give you one of the greatest point guards of all time in his waning years, but sure, he should still be able to bang, bang, pow, you know, keep that offense, you know, soar to new heights because he can just move the ball and make all these reads and, and you know, take it to a next level. And that's, like, true to an extent, but on one hand, this is not the Chris Paul of the Hornets, of the Clippers, of the Suns even. This is a Chris Paul that is probably at best going to give you, like, five assists, like six assists. And playmaking does not equal number of assists, but there is something to say for, like, how much, like, impact and, like, value you had when you're kind of only dishing like four and a half assists a game or whatever it is. Um, and also the problem really is that, okay, regardless, even if you are diming, just diming here, diming there, and the offense um, is is reaping the benefits of that, you're also hurting it because you're that little of a scoring threat. You're making it harder on guys like Steph and Clay because defenders can sag off of them and give a lot more attention, or can sag off of you, rather, you being Chris Paul, and can pay a lot more attention to a Steph and a Clay, and it's just making things harder for the for the Warriors, who are actually actively trying to score. Um, so yeah, Chris Paul, not been great in that aspect. Uh, speaking of a guy who's trying to score but isn't, Andrew Wiggins washed at 28 with no significant injury? Just ask, just asking questions here. Just a man of questions. Um, so yeah, Andrew Wiggins has been terrible this season. Um, he's got the lowest plus-minus on the team. Career low points per game, rebounding efficiency, all of that. Just a shell of the Warriors' arguably second best. Is it even arguably the Warriors' second best player on their title run two years ago? Yeah, he's that's, that guy's not there right now. So and and his lack of productivity has been devastating for this team, because um, for the for the Warriors who are 12th in offense, 24th in defense, they really need that Andrew Wiggins playing at that level right now. Um, that that two way beast, um, and he just hasn't been that. And I tried looking into what could be. Uh, like the cause for for that and I was reading theories on on warrior subreddits and all that so I got to put on my tin hat uh, tinfoil hat for this one but I saw some interesting things um the general consensus seems to be that he's just kind of lost a lot of confidence in his shot that tends to happen it can be a very snowball effect where you miss some so you miss more because you just become hesitant you're not you know, basketball is so momentum-based that when you kind of lose that, you hesitate for a second. You can really be screwing yourself, so I can actually see that. Um, and there was also a lot of mentions of the personal issue that Andrew Wiggins was dealing with um, that resulted in him missing 20-plus games from, like, February through the end of the season last season. Um, I believe it was a health issue with his father. Um, people think maybe that might have re resurfaced, come back into his life, and is affecting his on-court performances. Um, I'm not going to speculate and try to throw out a bunch of theories about the health of Andrew Wiggins' family members. That's so beyond the point. Um, and also, the big thing I, I always try to advocate or emphasize is that these are real people who deserve privacy after all. But, you know, it's, it's I guess, a, a possibility 
Um, and then one Redditor did bring up a good point, actually, that I, I like this one. And that's that uh, Wiggins is really just a play finisher. Um, and with the lack of playmaking that the Warriors have had, and the Warriors just not having a very good offense uh, in general this season, it leads to far worse chances for a play finisher who doesn't generate their own stuff, who, irregardless of the ball maybe not moving, well, when I get the ball, at least I can still go get a bucket. Like, no, if I'm a, if I'm a play finisher and the, and the, the offense is stagnant, and uh, that's going to affect me way more than it's going to affect the guys who put the ball on the floor. Um, and that makes sense. I like that reasoning. You know, it, it's non-controversial. It Like, it's rooted in fact. We're going to go with that, I think. Um, so, yeah. Pivoting back. Oh, sorry. The last thing I'll say is uh, Brandon Pajemski. He seems pretty cool. He seems pretty decent. Um, he's another player like Dario Saric where if he got traded for, like, a, a genuinely good piece, I'm not going to say anything. But I have liked his kind of consistent hustle and minimal production that he has um, through this season so far. Um, and I just, there's something to say about a, a, when the team's vibes are clearly really, really bad. And when some of the players are clearly like a bit dejected and not as in it as they usually are. When there's still one guy out there making those plays and really hustling, like got to, got to give hats off to him. So yeah, pivoting back towards the uh, Warriors core. Now I really want to talk about Clay Thompson. So I just wanted to uh, cut so I have more time because, again, as I said, this is going to be a lengthy segment. We still got a good, decent chunk to go. Um, but so Clay Thompson had a slow start to the season, as he always does. But he's up to 17 points, 38% from three. Um, and that's fine and dandy and all. But I think what I have kind of like a problem just accepting, like, that's the kind of player Clay is. And he's kind of always been like a slower start, uh, as I said, as he always does. Um but he's only, you know, he's getting older and older. And that mid-season bounce back is less and less guaranteed. And, uh, well, in general, it's going to be slower and slower. And in and then it will be less and less guaranteed. Um, and also to that last Wiggins point, Clay is also a, a, a dude who doesn't really put the ball on the floor. So he is bound to be negatively affected by the lack of ball movement and playmaking. Just figured I'd throw that out there, but... Not, not that that really uh, matters too much because Clay does get his own usually, um, but yeah, that that like that bounce back of like, yeah, I'm just like not worried about the first like 30 games of the season for Clay because he always comes back and then he's always this guy by by the playoffs. That's true now, but how long are you gonna just routinely be like, ah, Clay will be back by March, we're fine. Clay will be back by February, it'll be good, um, and so. I, I just uh, I just have a little bit of worry about that, and uh, you know, not it's that's not in, in and of itself a bad thing. Player gets slower and slower, not as not as quick to to kind of bounce back. That's not inherently a bad thing, you know. Not in an attempt to pat myself on the back here, but unlike a lot of the NBA community who doesn't seem to understand that athletes just naturally decline, I understand that players get older and they're not going to be doing. Uh, the same thing, and especially with some of the players we have in our league currently who are still playing at all league caliber levels while pushing the boundaries of how good you can be at a certain age. I think it's skewing a lot of the normalcy of like 
dude, once you reach like 33, you do start having that decline. If you're still in your prime at 33, you're actually doing really well. That has historically not been a super normal thing, and we got to understand that. Despite the fact that we have a few aliens running around the league right now at 36, 35, 37, still putting up 25 points, things like that. But Clay's entering his mid-30s, and he's made a comeback from an injury that historically has ended many athletes' careers. When you tear your ACL, in, in years past, that's been, that's it. Hope you had fun playing. Thanks for coming. But he's come back, and he's been an impactful player. He's won a championship since then, and that's awesome. But, you know, I, 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 I'm not sure how long we can continue to pretend Clay isn't declining slowly and soon that slowly won't be slow and he'll just fall off. And if it's kind of, if, if the Warriors haven't taken preventative measures by that point, yep, suddenly you're stuck with Clay Thompson in a main role, putting up like 12 points on like 35% efficiency. And you're like, well, this won't do for the playoffs. Um, and that sucks because I want Clay to be part of more championship runs, and I want Clay to retire as a warrior, just like Draymond. I want I want the three of of them, the 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 titular cornerstone of the Warriors. I want Steph, I want Clay, and I want Draymond to all be lifetime Warriors. I think that would be really cool, but it's really hard to do that when the aging stars won't accept the reality and kind of gracefully take a backseat to ensure that that dynasty lives on, and. To be clear, I don't think Clay needs to be coming off the bench. Definitely not right now. As I said, he he's getting his own, uh, and and will continue to be probably for another like season and a half. You know, this season and maybe one more. Um, but as it pertains to this current season, and as it pertains to this current season rather, Andrew Wiggins' lack of good play has been far more damaging to the Warriors. But you know what I'm saying is more so just going forward in general with Clay. Um, you know, you're going to need to kind of prepare yourselves in advance for that fact. And there sure are a lot of moments, you know, to, to cast doubt on the Warriors' ability to do that. There sure are a lot of moments where he's being subbed back in in favor of younger players who are objectively having more impactful games. And he will continue to be given, or is continually given, rather, apologies, uh, the green light despite having poor shooting performances. It'll be late in the game where Clay has shot maybe like 3 of 14 from 3, and he's just still putting them up while taking up the minutes of, of, of good young guys who could really use that. Um, and that's not all on Clay. There needs to be a higher level of accountability, I think, in general. And, you know, uh, and that comes from higher up than, than Clay on the sort of totem pole. But... To the extent that is under his control uh, and, and what he can do, Clay seems as staunch as ever in his refusal to acknowledge that he is not as good as he used to be. And that's frustrating. I'm not expecting Clay to say he's washed. He's not. But I do want him to recognize and be more candid about how he's not playing as well as he used to and is in the midst of a slower, like, of a, of a decline, at just this point in his career. It doesn't matter if he has a good game at one point, and then you're like, see, I can still do it. Yeah, you can still do it, but that guy isn't who you are on a day-to-day -day basis anymore. You're declining, pal. 
And so for him to not be a little bit more candid about that and advocate for the younger players, and maybe he is in private, I don't know, I don't like to uh, assume too much, but at least to do so more in public and maybe put pressure on the front office and Steve Kerr to give more um to give more development uh developmental playing time to some of the younger players you know i'm just i'm not seeing that and I, i'm not trying to tell him to commit mutiny on his captain or become a team pariah by by going to the media and saying steve kirk keeps playing me over over jonathan kaminga he's a fraud of a coach like no i'm not expecting any of that but to just sort of recognize that if you want this dynasty to continue going forward, its future hinges on the transition from one generation to the next. And if the coaches and the management aren't going to take that position naturally to the extent that is within your control, Clay Thompson, you might need to rock the ship a little. That's kind of what I'm saying. Um, but, you know, instead of doing that, he kind of harps on this idea of well, you know, if we've got Steph and we've got Dre and we've got me all healthy, we can be anybody. Bro. It's 2024, my brother. Y'all are not a championship level trio anymore. I don't like I don't, just the sauce ain't there. I don't know what to say. Not like it used to be at least. Y'all need help and that's okay. Like that's that's okay. You just need to recognize it. And this obviously isn't pertaining to Steph, who is still as productive as ever, basically, and is arguably still in the prime of his career. He can absolutely still be the best player on the championship team, and more so, like I said. Um, but to the guys who shared being a part of those cornerstones that built the Warriors dynasty, there's this unyielding lack of acceptance, particularly from Klay Thompson, towards the notion that he needs to take on a smaller role. You know, he... He, he mocks even the faintest idea of him being uh, coming off of the bench, even in a hypothetical. And just just that alone, like to have one of your vet stars so unwilling, even in theory, to step aside for some of the younger players who are supposed to carry the team into the future, that's not a good precedent. You know, what are you supposed to do about that? And to illustrate his mindset on that uh, uh, even better, there was... The the Warriors got booed in consecutive games. Either regardless, they got booed at home for having a really piss poor performance. And there was a very stark contrast between what Steph said about that and what Clay said about that. And Steph is the only one even keeping this team, like even sniffing the plans. And he said that it was basically I don't remember exactly what it is. So I'm paraphrasing, but he said like. Yeah, I get it. It's deserved. Like, we're, we, we've got to do better. Like, I, I, understanding where it's coming from, basically. Doing what the star player is supposed to do, even when it's not necessarily the star player's fault. You know, you get, you're going to get the, the majority of maybe the credit when you guys win a championship or something like that. But you also end up taking a lot of the brunt force of the criticism. Um, and even if it's not directly about you, you stand up for your team and take on the criticism sort of yourself. And he was. He was doing exactly what you would expect a leader to do. Clay Thompson, who should also be considered a leader, considering his place in the uh, in the franchise, had the exact opposite kind of uh, attitude towards it. He basically said something along the lines of, like, when am I going to lose sleep over it? Which is just so so snarky and so condescending when 
we all have eyes and can see you are not playing as well as you used to, to then pretend that it's like you're just gonna like gaslight us into thinking we're just like booing you for no reason or something like it's really it's really uh un unprofessional honestly um and i think they're just he needs to recognize that eventually those past accomplishments are not going to carry you today you know you are one of the greatest shooters the game has ever seen you are a four-time champion uh you know six-time all-star whatever you are <clears throat> but you will are getting worse as a player <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how else to say it like you're you're not the the sum total of your resume does not reflect who you are in this very moment so that needs to be that needs to be acknowledged with a lot more bluntness um and speaking of those young guys i do want to say uh, or actually the last thing i want to say on like the not the last thing but one of the last things i have for this little section um, is when you have an aging core and you're trying to stay competitive, like the Warriors clearly are, and um, you need to do that through signings or through developing the youth. Either way, something has to change, obviously. And the Warriors have those aging stars. They have those players. But whether through the front office or the players themselves or a combination of both, most likely... They still want to have that same size role as when they were stars. Klay Thompson, Draymond Green to a smaller extent. They want to get the minutes of a superstar. They want to get paid like a superstar. And that, that paid aspect is something I'm not even going to touch right now because the Warriors have a very, very uh, rocky road ahead of them in terms of um, re-signing these guys if they even were to do that. Because um, a lot of them are expecting that they're just going to continue to get like max money. But they, they want to get paid like superstars. They want to be treated like superstars. They want the, the minutes and the playing time of a superstar. And all while not even empowering the youth by actively advocating publicly, again, the asterisk is on publicly, um, for those young guys to be given more of a chance. So speaking of those young guys who I know I've been tap dancing around for quite a bit, but uh, I want to take the conversation now over to Jonathan Kaminga and Moses Moody. And the general drama around them and Steve Kerr and Steve Kerr potentially being a fraud? <laughs> Anyways. Uh, some may not agree with me on this, and I know they're kind of hit-or-miss players uh, in within the Warriors fandom, but in my opinion, Jonathan Kaminga and Moses Moody have absolutely proven that with extended playing time and opportunity, they are good NBA players. They are good. They are really promising, especially Jonathan Kaminga. Um, Moses Moody has unfortunately been uh, injured for a bit, but they've both been really strong contributors when just given a little bit more space, when they're not immediately uh, immediately uh, punished for a, a bad mistake or a bad move. Um, we don't need to put too much uh, thought or effort into their uh, per 36 numbers because I know it's a lot of like hypothetical, but per 36, uh, Jonathan Kaminga averages 19 and a half points, six and a half rebounds, two and a half assists, and almost a steal and a block a game. Moses Moody averages uh, 15 points, five rebounds, uh, two assists, uh, a steal. These are good NBA players that routinely are not given a chance when they mess up. And they're young players, and they're going to mess up. And if you don't allow them to get over that hump, they're never going to be more than that show some promise 
uh, some promising talent in spurts. They're never going to be able to grow into that being consistently who they are if they're not given a chance. And so, um, but but for some reason, Steve Kerr just fucking hates these guys. I don't know what it is. Not really, but like maybe maybe he does. I don't really have a great explanation for it otherwise, for him constantly pulling them out of games when they've been playing good, especially Jonathan Kaminga. He will routinely have a really, really strong first half and then just no second half playing time. Just It's just gone. As I mentioned, Clay and Wiggs are favored late in games, even though they're having stinkers this season and... Likely for likely for both of them because they're they're twenty eight and thirty like three respectively. It's not like they're just gonna suddenly jump back to being like across the board for full seasons better than Jonathan Kaminga. So this is kind of that ideal time to start giving Kaminga those minutes. Um, but they're not, and uh, Kaminga's back to coming off of the bench. He had a great game last night against the Kings. I actually want to pull that up because. I was like, this is what I mean. This is what I mean. Like, why are you not playing this guy more? Because he uh, he had 31 points, 3 rebounds, 3 assists, 2 steals, 50% from 3. Um, really, really strong from the field in general. 12 of 19 shooting. And Jonathan Kamingo made mistakes last night. He made mistakes. He had some turnovers. He had some lapses. But for for for... For once, Steve Kerr let him play in the fourth quarter again. They took him out for like the first half of the first uh, of, of the first like half of the fourth quarter, um, and then and then Draymond came to the bench and Kaminga went back in and Kaminga had so many really clutch plays, dominant post, just yamming it on a motherfucker with like one step because the kid's just so explosive, and he played really really well down the stretch. What usually happens is he has that first half that's good, and then he has that third quarter where he makes a couple of mistakes or whatever, and then he just doesn't play again. He's just not giving that chance. What happens when you just let him back in? You go, hey, you're going to make those mistakes. Keep going. Well, he puts up 31-3-3, thir- and three, and the Warriors don't lose, but that's or, and the Warriors lose, but that's not the point. Um but yeah, that's it's that's really one of my main frustrations is like, I'm not going to pretend that Jonathan Kaminga is this like, you know, he, he's like 80% true shooting, never misses a shot, like, uh, kind of guy who doesn't make mistakes. But to, it's it's such a narrow way of thinking to be like, uh, Jonathan Kaminga shows a lot of spurts of talent, but he messes up sometimes. And then from that, your conclusion is just, I'm not going to give him extended playing time to see if he grows out of that. No, I'm just going to leave him in this permanent state of limbo like they are. Um, and it doesn't help that Jonathan Kaminga especially is constantly dangled in trade rumors, which cannot help it, it cannot make it easy to just exist on this team. Um, and yeah, I just, I feel like uh, for both of them again, not just about Jonathan Kaminga, who trade rumors are more so about than Moses Moody. Um, but for both of them, it really feels like the Warriors, particularly Steve Kerr, have seriously stripped them of a lot of their confidence and their they're able to get it back in bigger moments, but then it feels like it's just bound to be stripped away from them again. And the only way that they can really like grow that and be confident in who they are as players, even during bad games, is if you give them a full stretch of playing, having bad games sometimes, having good games sometimes, but you're going to stay a starter regardless because you are our future guy, supposedly. And so, yeah, it just feels like it, it, it just feels like, you know, if if you want him to be the guy 
who he's here to be, you know, a young star to take the to to be a titu- like a really important part of the dynasty moving forward. Well, then you've you've got to let him grow. Like you're you're kind of like cucking yourself in that aspect. Um, and again, they have their flaws. So I'm not trying to like make them seem like infallible players, but um, I think I think the the main frustration with that I have with the situation in Golden State is that they are so clearly declining, but haven't shown that serious commitment to those young guys. And they'll constantly put them in bad situations, which just kind of makes them look worse, uh, especially in terms of as trade pieces, which is a really weird I like thing that I don't get because again, I believe in them, but if if the if the Warriors were to say like or if if secretly the Warriors do not believe in them, then I really don't understand what they're doing because I think they're great, but they objectively had higher trade value a season and a half ago, right? When they were more mysterious raw talents with like high upsides and that especially is uh pertains to Jonathan Kaminga, but since their championship in 2022, they just kind of go in and out of the lineup, struggling to find a rhythm and put up good numbers over a like prolonged stretch of time. So they kind of end up just sort of looking like meh players that people from the outside are infinitely less interested in. Um, and that's also like you're, you're standing in your own way if you want to move them for more like win now pieces, but you're not doing that. So it's like, you know, you're... You're you're not giving him a chance to be the to to be a young player going forward in this dynasty. Okay, clearly you're not you know that's not the the path you're interested in. Then trade him. What do you do instead? No, I'm just gonna play him in really poor minutes and make him look not very good. Who is that helping? Um, so <clears throat> I just I don't understand that whole train of thought. Um, the Warriors want to extend their reign and stay a championship contender. Clearly. Specifically, they want to maximize whatever's left of Steph Curry's prime, who's not just a player who can lead a team to a championship, which is already rare. There's already only five or six of those guys in the league at a time at most. But Steph Curry is a player who is truly one of the 10, 15 greatest players this league has ever seen. You're not going to come by a Steph Curry kind of talent again for a really long time. Making the urgency to stay competitive or to be more decisive about which way you want to go with these young guys, that much more crucial. That much more of a headache that they haven't done that. And the rest, as I said, the rest of the, the older uh, core players, you know, maybe not so much Dre after the suspension, we'll kind of have to see long term, um, but they've slowed down and there's not enough trust in the young players to kind of make up for that. So the Warriors are just kind of stuck in this spot. They're the 12th seed. They don't, they're not going on a run right now where it's like, Hey, they were the 14th seed last week. They'll be the ninth seed next week. No, they've been consistently the 12th seed for like several weeks now, just middling back and forth, you know, a win here, two losses there. Um, and I'm just not, I'm really not sure what they're doing. If the Warriors want to ride out with their old dudes, then trade Kaminga, trade Moody, let them thrive somewhere else, rip the Band-Aid off, and make some real big boy moves for pieces that are actually going to keep the team relevant as long as possible. Because you clearly want to ride off into the sunset, squeezing everything out of Steph Curry that you can. Pause. 
So, Warriors, you gotta make up your mind. Alright, and on to our last segment for this absolutely girthy episode. And I had to change the batteries, which required me taking the uh, camera down from its perched up bird nest. So, apologies if the if you're watching visually and the camera angle just changed. And if you're watching, if you're still watching, especially visually, an hour and like 40 minutes in, you're a goat. But, anyways... Um, our last segment here is, uh, we're going to go to sunny Los Angeles, California to talk about the Lakers. We will revisit sunny Los Angeles, California to talk about the Clippers at some point, but we're going to talk about the namesake here and, uh, touch bases with a certain team. Um, so yeah, the Lakers have not looked nearly as good since their in-season tournament win, which feels like it was ages ago at this point, but... Yeah, they they don't look nearly as connected, nearly as good, nearly as much of a contender as someone, maybe this guy, would have thought earlier on. Um, So have my feelings changed? Am I standing on business about how I felt? Find out next time on Hoops Hour. I'm just kidding. But seriously, this team is the ninth seed. They have a 500 record, barely. It's only because of a win last night nothing's moving me about the Lakers and nothing about the Lakers has moved me in like the past month and a half. So let's talk about it real quick. Um, LeBron had those post-game comments. I don't remember what game it was. kind of doesn't matter because they've, they've been on a, a suffering losing streak of, of a couple losses and then like sprinkle in a win here. Um, but he pretty bluntly said, and he looked pretty frustrated when it happens. And we all know LeBron to be that, uh, that cheery, joyful guy, but he was, he was really over the, over kind of having to even think about the Lakers' shitty performances in said game. Um, and he kind of just like flat out said like, we suck, you know, we suck right now and we got to do something about it. And the reason I bring that up because that was, you know, several, several games ago or whatever is because it doesn't really feel like the attitude of the team or particularly LeBron has much shifted from that point. It feels like there's still uh, in that mentality. So that's why I bring that up. Um, there seems to be a profound disconnect between the Lakers and Darvin Ham, their coach, stemming most likely from the disjointedness around his really, really bad rotations and mid-game adjustments and overall coaching decisions in general. Also, the fact that the dude just stands there. Never in my life have I seen a coach just chilling, just standing, hands in pocket, doing absolutely nothing more than Darvin Ham. It's so, so funny. The look he constantly has just standing at midcourt is like a combination of not giving a shit what's going on, being completely out of his depth, and the way you try to act cool when you get too high at a function and you have a hard time interacting with people and you're just like... That's him. That's him. And he just stands there just watching his team get absolutely pummeled, watching the other team go on like a 12-0 run before he even decides to call a timeout, which he won't even sometimes. Um, but yeah, just not not looking good there. Um, you've got no one listening during timeouts. Players subbing themselves in and out because he's just like not really paying that much attention or on top of it. You've got LeBron drawing up plays himself. We can expect that because he's the GM, but it just kind of feels like it's a free-for-all on that roster right now. Darvin Ham doesn't appear to have command, uh, uh, or doesn't appear to command the attention 
or respect of the players when it really counts. I don't know what the the vibes are like at team practice or um, before the game, you know, in the locker room huddle or whatever, but when it's late and it's close, there are often times where Darvin Ham is not the center of that huddle. He is not the one talking in that huddle. He is. He might as well be the equipment manager or another player just sitting on the bench listening and like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. We should do that. Like, buddy, you're the coach. What do you mean, you we? <laughs> um, so that's a, that's a really bad thing, and especially for a team that has very high expectations like the Lakers. And I will admit, you know, it's going to be tricky when it's the Lakers as a coach. It's going to be – your job is extra hard when you're coaching the Lakers – and you have stars, especially someone like LeBron James, who you, Darvin Ham, literally defended against 20 years ago when you were a player. That's got to be a really weird dynamic. But regardless, Darvin Ham is not cut out to be the coach of this team. Just flat out. Sorry. I, I, <laughs> I know coaches can be way more easily made into scapegoats when things aren't working out. But this doesn't feel like that. There is a general genuine consensus that this dude just ain't it interesting little factoid everybody online had been talking about a couple of games ago that i felt like i would share last season the 2023 lakers after 40 games were 19 and 21 the 2024 lakers after 40 games were 19 and 21 that's bad that really shocked me because Uh, under an entirely new context, the Lakers have seeming somehow arrived at the exact same spot they were in last year. Except this year, they had reasonable expectations to be way, way better than this. Like the the Lakers being nineteen and twenty one last season somehow felt like yeah, this is one of the worst teams. We know that. Like we're we're still talking about like Russell Westbrook era Lakers at this point. The Lakers didn't feel like they were that bad this season in the past like month but they've just somehow arrived at the same point it's absolutely shocking to me um and it's very very frustrating for for lakers fans i imagine who constantly go on this like i mean i'm you know what i'm not even gonna say because i'm i'm definitely not defending lakers fans those motherfuckers are annoying as shit anyways sorry to all nice lakers fans out there i'm i sympathize with um how you feel about what I just said, because I'm a Knicks fan, and I like to think I'm a pretty cool dude as reasonable takes, but obviously the Knicks fandom is its own thing. You know, we we saw with the Becky Hammond comments, we saw with the uh, uh, Candace Parker comments, which, oh my God, can I talk about that for a second? Jesus, I'm so sorry. I know we're talking about the Lakers right now, but I, I literally have to bring this up. This is so frustrating. The Knicks fandom... And this is this is like I'm not even gonna give context for this. So if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. But Candace Candace Parker, the the comment about Jalen Brunson's um, second round performance uh, last playoffs, where she said she ba- he, he basically just like didn't show up or whatever. Um, and that's objectively false. That is that is false. I'm not saying Candace Parker doesn't watch basketball, doesn't know ball or whatever. Like a lot of people, admittedly, took it too far and said. But it is really frustrating because Knicks constantly suffer from horrible media coverage, especially nationally. Um, and then to, you know, it's one thing if you uh, come to a different conclusion than Knicks fans and you're like, I don't think X is as good as you guys think. And then we can argue about that, you know, the the 1A comments and all that bullshit. 
but Candace Parker did just kind of straight up not say the truth. I don't think it definitely wasn't intentional. I'm not saying anything like that, but it was frustrating when you say like our our, our best player didn't perform well in the second round when he quite literally was the only reason that second round went to six games actually. And uh, naturally, a lot of Knicks fans were upset. Naturally, a lot of them took it way too far and were way too corny about it. But the NBA was also really, really corny about it. Like, the the WNBA tweeted out Candace Parker's resume and put, for no reason at all, put at the bottom. And it's just like, buddy, buddy, what does this have to do with a conversation? Like, it's an instant deflection. Like, Candace Parker, you were wrong about the comments you made. I have no, no, no qualms or quarrels or comments to even make about your general basketball coverage and commentary at large. I'm sure you have lots of really, really good takes, but that was just like, that was, that was like false. That was like false. And I'm sure maybe even the point she was making was like, right. But that like specific thing was false, but it feels really weird that like the, the whole NBA media, like, um, atmosphere sort of just went like classic Knicks fans overreacting. Look at Candace Parker. She knows ball like that. And I'm like, Oh man. It's it's hard to it's hard to get a good look out here. Anyway, that was the I'm so sorry for that all that. If you especially if you clicked on this um as like a as like a Lakers thing and I just kind of did that, but whatever. Um anyways, back to what I was saying about the Lakers. Um all of that was was just me being in frustrated Knicks fans about uh about media portrayal. Anyways, um but so yeah, they've arrived at the exact same point. They are now, now they're they're not uh, nineteen and twenty one. I think they might be like twenty two and twenty two. Is that a? Is that would that be correct? I. Holy shit! Where are the Lakers? Yeah, twenty three and twenty three. Sorry, um, but someone said this. I don't remember who it was, so I'm sorry. Uh, apologies that I'm I'm kind of taking this, but it was not my original thought. Um, but they kind of summed up the Lakers in like a pretty funny, but like very accurate way. I thought per what I feel. Um, and that was that the Lakers have good defensive players and good offensive players. I just did a crazy stutter defensive. I don't, I, I never do that. That was weird. Anyway, that's the only reason I brought that up. Um, they have good defensive players and they have good offensive players. And that was the statement. I'm going to amend that statement a bit here and say they have some decent shooters, sometimes and like Austin Reeves and D'Angelo Russell who can put the ball on the ground sometimes and, and do some stuff off the dribble. Anyways, point being not many players that are both simultaneously. Most of the rotation guys like Rui Hachimura, Cam Reddish, whatever, uh, they're, they're, they're consistently plus defenders, but hit or miss at best on offense. None of them are having, and, and even if they are really good, None of them are having enough production to be hugely impactful. So even for a guy like Torian Prince, who I would say has been one of the best, if not maybe just, or one of the best, but also regardless, definitely their most consistent 3 and D player. At the end of the day, he's still only putting up 10 points in 31 minutes of action a game. So, you know, that's not like, even if even if he didn't miss anyone like, three for three from three or four for four for three. At the end of the day, that's, that's, that's still just four shots in the grand scheme of a hundred possessions in a game or whatever. So it's still not enough impact. Um, Jared Vanderbilt is a great defender, but is such a negative on offense that you can't even play the dude sometimes. 
Jackson Hayes just functionally isn't on this team. <laughs> He's just kind of chilling. Uh, Christian Wood, don't even get me started with that guy. Um, yeah, the theme is really that at best, these guys are positively contributing, but not to a substantial enough degree that it's actually winning games. Um, and then also a lot of times they're not playing very well. Um, I don't know how many Lakers games I've watched where I've really thought like, wow, LA's bench really just carried them through to the finish line here. Like, nah, they need AD and they need Braun to have good games. And then for like at least one of them to kind of step up. And that third option by committee game plan is just not reliable enough to be sustainable in the playoffs. So they need more firepower. And to highlight that point, this absolutely shocked me um, when I was watching last night's game against the Bulls. Um, last night um, was, and you know, to get a little meta here, it's January 26th right now. So January 25th, uh, last night, was the first game this season where four Lakers had 20 points. The first time this season that four of y'all had 20 points? That's just not enough consistent production across the board. A um, couple of stats here. Uh, 14th in defense. Not so worried about that. This is one of those teams that can lock in when it really matters. Um, they were 12th in defense last season, but were one of the very best defensive teams during the playoffs. So I think that that's more of like a, that's a switch that they can turn on. But they're 21st in offense. And thing is, the Lakers are top 10 in pace and assist percentage. So the ball is moving. They're having trouble putting it in the basket. And that's, a, that's, that's not usually the combination you see. When you see a really bad offense, it's usually not dynamic. It's usually not fluid. They've got a lot of that going on. They just don't have those bona fide scores. They need that shit. So this is what I think needs to happen. As I, I just kind of said it, whoops. But um, this is why I need to do less notes. Anyways, getting too meta here. Um, this team needs an elite score. Like, just a pure, regard, like, regardless bucket getter. But also not a bucket getter that's going to, like, really grind the offense to a, like, to, a, to a grinding halt. Because ultimately, the vast majority of the players on the Lakers are play finishers. Even if you got that third option, a lot of possessions are still going to end out with, like, kickoffs or play finishes to our kickouts or play finishes um, to someone. So... You don't want someone that's going to really slow down the offense too much, but you do need someone who can take that ball and score. And so, um, and especially to have the tremendous gravity as the, as themselves as a scorer, that it opens up the three-point line and it gets some better offense and better looks for everyone else who hasn't been shooting very well uh, or who haven't been. Um, and so I just think the, the Lakers need to to do away with the uh, with the practice that they've had over the past several years, honestly, of assembling like these deep rosters of rotation guys who end up underperforming the second they put on the purple and gold. This team needs another star, someone that's like it it is as advertised when they show up. And I am guilty of doing this. I'm guilty and I would like to apologize for participating in the cycle of hyping up the Lakers just to say they need to do some major roster reconstruction halfway through the season just for them to make a trade 
And then for me to go, hey, they look pretty sneaky good. And then suddenly they do really well in the playoffs. And then I'm like, hey, next year, that's when they're going to be a real title threat. I'm not the only one doing it, but I've definitely been guilty of it a bit. And if we couldn't see it before, it should be very clear now. The Lakers are stuck in a negative, repetitive cycle and loop of just uh, of just not doing enough, not making a substantial enough change to push them over the edge, just sort of trying to fill in the margins. And uh, it's not enough because essentially you're still relying that way on Braun and AD too much, um, which is crazy because it feels like that's a lesson that they've routinely learned painfully over and over again since they last won a championship in 2020, but they keep trying to do it. Braun is only going to get older and older, and even if he literally still plays as a 27-7 and seven, uh, and seven kind of guy, uh, until he's 45. Like, he can, only, he, can, he can only do that in smaller and smaller spurts. So, okay, he can't be your rain guy right anymore. AD, I, I mean, I've already shared my uh, extensive thoughts about Anthony Davis, but I, he's a fantastic player, but he hasn't done enough, in my opinion, to confidently be the first option the fact that it's even still a conversation at this point in 2024 of who's the first option on that team or we or we talk about anthony davis becoming the first option as a novel thing i think the fact that we're talking about that this late in that in this era of the lakers is a profound failure of anthony davis's to have stepped up to that point he should have been unquestionably that since 2021 the second braun got that finals mvp the next season like all right maybe not immediately then but like you know what i'm saying like uh t- two seasons ago anthony davis should have been unquestionably their main guy and it shouldn't be about like can he take that step to be? He should have been that already. Guys, you've won a championship. I don't know what to say. Um, but yeah, just no more half measures, hoping they can ride off of playoff LeBron and AD still being available and then just like whatever you can get from these other guys. Like it just, it's not, an, and it clearly gets you close. We saw it last season, but that's as far as it's going to get you. You can you can get two great upset uh wins in the first and second rounds but when you face a contender in the conference finals you're not going to get past that with this kind of roster you're not so you need to make a a trade for another star um a lot of people want braun back on minutes restrictions so that there's like a better more refined version of him out there and i get it he was definitely extra dialed in towards the beginning of the season on lower minutes but Braun playing five extra minutes per game right now is not what's wrong with this team. And considering how inconsistent a lot of the other players on this roster tend to be, Braun playing less minutes would have an adverse effect than what you think at this moment. We can do that. We can have that conversation when they get that other star. So just to quickly acknowledge that uh, that uh, group of people. Um. There's been a lot of rumors about making a trade for DeJounte Murray. I personally think that would be a really super solid move by the Lakers. Um, he's a 20 points, 5 assists a night kind of guy, shooting 39% from 3 on high volume, and is a, a plus he's a very good defender from the guard position. Um, I think he would be a great addition, um, kind of exactly what, at least on paper, I think the, the, uh, the Lakers need. 
you know, make an offer. I'm sure they have, but, you know, maybe make an offer. Uh, throw a, a Jared Vanderbilt, a Christian Wood, um, Cam Reddish if you have to. Maybe sprinkle on Jalen Hood Shafino to spice up the deal because oh, I bet a bunch of people just went, who? Not a bunch of people, but, uh, you know, Jalen Hood Shafino. Sorry for the sorry for the stray, Jalen, but, like, you know, you've played probably, like, what, 13 minutes this season? Whatever. Um <laughs> I just went hard on Jalen Hood Shafino for no reason, but you know, throw him in if if it helps. And then you know, copacetic. Maybe uh, the Lakers can get can get Dejounte Murray for that. And if if you're listening and you're a trades guy, and that deal this deal doesn't logistically work out, um, don't get mad at me. I'm not a trades guy. This is a vibes based thing, and what I think one team needs versus what one team is uh, willing to give up. This seems like a good match in that aspect. No idea what the salary. Uh, what the salaries look like, but I think I think DJ Murray would be a great addition, would be a great move for the Lakers to make, and would put them back into being a like serious deep playoff. I mean, I think they're probably no, they're the ninth seed. What I'm even talking about? See, this is what I mean. Like the 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 facade of the Lakers makes you think that they can do anything. Whoops, apologies about that. So um, I have only a limited amount of space I can. Uh, concurrently record on on the camera so sorry for that cut there but uh we're almost done here um yeah i I, but like you just saw it live in in as long as it didn't cut off but i i literally just questioned if the lakers are even a serious uh playoff team right now no they're not and that's the thing is somehow the facade of them their aura can make you think like yeah you know on any given day but like no no we've seen it they need that they need that third guy um so yeah it's it's wild that it feels like the best case scenario right now, if the if the Lakers were to just squeak into the playoffs, the best case scenario right now is they like repeat the success they had last season. You know, they they get an upset in our in the first round or whatever, and make it further than people thought, but ultimately aren't going to win anything. And for a team that's supposed to be knocking on the door of a championship, is supposed to be uh, as competitive as possible, running a season back with those exact same results is not what you need, especially when you're on a pretty tight timeline with an old guy like uh, with like LeBron and Anthony Davis, who you know is is just always going to kind of be a constant question. I know he signed a, a three year deal with the Lakers, but um, that means nothing in today's NBA anyway. But um, yeah, more so than like a team that is a contender that has a longer timeline. Um, this is a team that's fighting to be a contender and has a very short timeline to even do so. So you can't really afford another year of just like going to the playoffs with what you have and making it work from there as far as you can. No, like none of that. You need that. You need that guy. Um, so yeah, it, it, it would take a miracle, honestly, even to repeat where they got to. They are the the west is much stronger the lakers are not better um and if they are relative they're not um to how much better the west got over this uh, past season so it would it would be a miracle for them to even get that far and that far wasn't even enough to get a championship so the lakers they need to make some moves last thing i want to say darvin my friend mr ham sandwich while I don't think very highly of you as a coach, um, from you know, from what I've seen at least, uh, I definitely want to acknowledge that you do get a disproportionate amount of heat 
you know, <laughs> as is the nature of coaching star players, unfortunately. But regardless, this team has sucked, and you're not a very good coach, but I don't think that's all on you. Um, you, you're not the one. You're not the ones making these guys um, have defensive lapses or miss their man or miss their open shots. That's not on you, Darwin. So, apologies. But you know, and I don't have any money, so I'm not like you know. This is really just the saying because I'm a broke boy. But I would put good money on Darvin Ham not being the coach of the Lakers next season. So, yeah. That's how I feel about the Lakers. They need to make a trade. They're not looking very good right now. And um, it's 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 possible for them to kind of do a Cinderella run like they did last time, but they would need to do it with more firepower. Like even if they made that DeJounte Murray trade, they're on an uphill they're they're on an uphill battle. They're ninth. They are the ninth seed. They would need to uh, win a lot of games over a, a or have a high high winning percentage uh with this with this last like maybe like third of the season um after the trade deadline <clears throat> they would need to have an absurd winning percentage kind of like what they did last season where they pulled off that miracle and made it to the 7th seed like it's a, it's it, they would that would be an impressive thing for them to do even with De, a DeJounte Murray is kind of my point so they're not in great shape right now and uh I don't know but I'm never going to doubt Bron my king my glorious looking um, but this team just is not is not cutting it right now, so we'll have to see, and we'll we'll uh, we'll keep up with them. They're the Lakers, so they're always going to be the center of trade talks. And us being in the heart of trade season right now, I am more than sure that uh, we'll be talking about the Lakers soon enough again. Whoa! All right, so um, that's about it. I don't have any um, ramble or extra thoughts for you guys today, um, probably because this has been certainly enough of a ramble. I'd like to think. Um, if you're watching on audio, I'll get a little meta here for uh, how long we've been recording. I don't know if you can even see that. Anyways, it's a long time. You know how long it's. I didn't even need to do that. You can literally see how long this thing is. I'm so stupid. I'm so rusty, guys. It, it took it took like four episodes, like four, three and a half, four weeks for me to get like really comfortable and, and not constantly slipping up on words. I shattered that by taking off the, uh, the holidays. I shattered that. But we're going to get back into that. We have a new mic. I hope that's been nice. I need to be more uh, conscientious of talking into it. I kind of only realized that like halfway through this episode, I had been talking like outwards to like the camera and like this screen of mine rather than directly to the uh, to the mic. But I could I could have always, uh, you know, fixed it like that. And then I can just chill out and be like, hey, what's up, guys? Um, but I hope you enjoyed this, uh, you know, this big, fat, juicy episode. Um, I'm I'm working on diversifying where this content is i want it to be consumable in a lot of different formats i'm gonna have the segments as clips on youtube um to watch along with just like the full episodes being posted i'm working on getting the spot uh the podcast on spotify it's um it's currently on red circle if you use red circle but um working on getting it on spotify so that it can truly be like a a, a to-go mobile audio listening experience um, if you like watching like with visual cues, I, when there's a video for podcasts, I do like watching that usually, even if I'm not like paying super close attention to it, just sort of adds the atmosphere. So if you like watching it that way, that's cool. And I'm going to be, as I said, uh, making the segments into, uh, more bite size. And if you, if I talk about 
the Lakers, for example, if you're a Lakers fan and you, you saw the Lakers maybe in the title of this episode, but you don't want to watch an hour and a half for me to get to the Lakers, that you know, might just get uploaded separately. And I might even start making like just clips and maybe just like minute long rants I had during a segment and having those uploaded on like a TikTok or something like that. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm working on having it everywhere and I'm really excited about that. Um, I think that would be really cool um, to kind of put put my stuff on, on, all, on all platforms. Um, the reason I say is it, this might be like a one a week kind of thing until I, I get some of that established, but... Um, other than that, you know, follow, follow all the other socials. Um, I'm very active on them, especially Twitter. I'm very active on Twitter. I had a hilarious interaction with a Denver Nuggets, uh, fan last night. <clears throat> Absolutely bodied that fool, but not the point. Um, that and TikTok, I was, I was like really active on TikTok at the start of the season. Um, but not as much. I hadn't been, but I'm kind of getting back into it. And then also with these clips and stuff that might be there, I'll be more active on that. But so I'd say like TikTok and, and, and uh, Twitter are super great spots that you can find me like really actively, probably like uh, at least like once a day live saying something. Um, so yeah, if you know, follow those, it'd be really cool if you're a fan of this, uh, of this, of this show and we're going to keep getting better. Um, I really hope you enjoyed watching, um, you know, Bear with me as I get kind of readjusted into doing all of this. Um, but I'm, I'm really excited. Happy 2024. I know, I mean, we're like literally sniffing February at this point, which is absurd. But I've got lots of good plans and I'm, I'm very excited. So um, stay with me, please. And uh, I promise I'll make it worth it. And uh, thanks for watching. And uh, till next time. <laughs>